Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale, Theo Chapsalis, and Jan Navruzzi. Before getting into today's discussion, I'm very pleased to tell you all uh, that we now have our very own Bondcast channel. So if you want to keep getting the latest episodes of Bondcast straight to your ears, um, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and search for Bondcast, the Rates Podcast, and hit subscribe. All right, Theo, I'm going to start with you this week because I think the UK is probably where it's been most exciting, or at least we've seen a a lot of volatility um, over the past week. But before getting into what's really been driving that, um, I just wanted to quickly touch on um, green bonds, because um, I know one thing that we've been talking about, aside from the whole inflation discussion, um, is the UK's green gilts. uh, And we should be um, getting a new green gilt in the next couple of weeks. So I was wondering if you could just give our listeners a kind of quick download on um, everything we need to know about that upcoming Green Guild issuance. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Imogen. So Green Guilds is a key theme for UK issuance this year. 15 billion of, uh, 15 billion pounds have been allocated for the issuance of Green Guilds. The first deal has gone really well. We talk about uh, 10 billion that were sold and the book size was Uh, at 100 billion, just to give some context, we've not seen a book size of 100 billion ever. So it is a record. Also the transaction and and the guild seems to have been trading well right after that. So there was clearly very strong demand for that short dated or let's say 10 year green guild. And now the DMO considers issuing a 30 year green guild as you've correctly mentioned. Yeah, indeed on the 19th of October, uh, it's, it's our estimate we should get uh, 5 billion of uh, a new 30-year green bond. So the DMO, they are building up their the curve. They're building up the green curve. And obviously a second bond is needed. Now the investor base is different for the, for, for the short data, the shorter data, because a 10-year bond, well, uh, it's, it's shorter. It's, it's, it's hard to argue that it's just short. Uh, the investment base is different. For the 10-year guild, we've seen you know, internationals, uh, real money, bank treasuries, uh, a quite wide uh, investor range. For the 30-year bond, the investor base will be different. It will be more pension schemes, more LDI-related, uh, you know, and also UK real money. Um, now, we'll wait to see how that transaction goes. Uh, we, we think that it should be very well received. Uh, the level of yields in the UK look appealing. Uh, on a cross-market basis also, the UK seems to be uh, an attractive market right now. So we think that this transaction uh, will go well. It is something where we should get at least a set five billion. Maybe we get more, um, but really this is something that um, w- we, need, we need really to assess. What I think matters here is that the DMO, they want to have a liquid, deep, stable market, well-functioning market. So those things rather than, you know, just impress with with more bonds and with more size so this is why it will go well but we are you know we need to assess how strong it goes and then think what the next steps are with regards to uh green issuance which seems to be um an exciting topic in the uk 
I guess with those last couple of sentences, you really sort of answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, the DMO said at the beginning of this year that they intend to do at least 15 billion of green gills. So we've already had the um, 10 billion of, of tenure in um, September, and now we're thinking of getting, you know, around or at least 5 billion. Do you think that they probably stop there with kind of green issuance for this fiscal year then and, and look to return to it next year? Or do you think that if next week does go well, then there could be the possibility that we see perhaps a third new green bond from, from the DMO this year? I think there is a difference between um, willingness to issue and then the need to issue. So on the 27th of October, we'll get the update um, of the budget. And that update will include forecasts with regards to um, CGNCR or, you know, cash numbers or, you know, fiscal numbers and how much in terms of gills will need to be issued. And we do expect a revision in terms of gills issuance. Now, is it 30, is it 40, is it 50 billion? This is something that we are still working on, uh, but it will be a sizable revision. That means that we'll get less of everything, less shorter conventional, less mediums, less longs, less linkers, and probably, you know, the scope to get more green after that becomes smaller, at least in this financial year. Again, you, we cannot exclude anything and maybe demand is really so strong um, on the 19th of October that the DMO issues well beyond those 5 billion, right? But I think that for this financial year, most likely the need to raise cash will be smaller because, well, the UK economy uh, is rebounding actually better than expected. So we've got uh, good news for that. Uh, but it is something that we do expects to be a key topic in the years, in the next financial year. So green issues is, is, is something exciting, is something um, appealing, uh, and it will keep us busy for the next years. I think it certainly is and it's going to be a busy month anyway for green issuance because we also have uh, next week the first green um, syndication from the EU as part of their um, NGEU funding so um, October is set to be quite a big month on, on the green bond front. Okay, let's move on then to more exciting things on the inflation front, which we've already kind of alluded to um, in the pod. Um, there's been a, a fair amount of volatility, I would say, in the, in the inflation market in the UK. So why don't you just give, our, give us your latest thoughts on that since um, we spoke last week, because there's been a fair amount of First movement. First of all, yeah. First of all, what we do see is that the disruption is clearer much more evident in the euro area. Euro area means, sorry, Europe and the UK. So when I call Europe, uh, I still assume that the UK, even though with Brexit, we are part of Europe. So in Europe, it is clearly much more evident than in the US. Yes, there is a rise in commodities, but this is a lot more evident. To put uh, things into perspective, I mean, we talk about one month increase in the euro area, which is, and the UK, which is of around 125% uh, in natural gas prices, whereas in the US, this is only 34% as of now. So clearly the magnitude is different. Uh, what does it mean? Well, a lot of investors try to mark the front end of the inflation curve on the back of that. The very short end of the curve, the one year is, is extremely volatile. We talk about intraday moves in the area of 50 to 20 basis points every day. Some prints this year, uh, sorry, some prints today for next year, for example, for April 2022, the market price was pricing in at some point earlier today, 7.2% of an RPI rate. 
which is unprecedented. We've not seen that since 1990. So um, even maybe some of our young members and in the audience, they may not, uh, uh, they not have been around at the time. So we talk about very, very, uh, you know, high numbers. Uh, we talk about uncertainty, we talk about volatility, we talk about gap risk. Now we're recording on Wednesday, the 6th. What we see is that there has been a correction in commodities later this day, intraday. So really it is a fast moving market. I talk about the last uh, three, four hours. And that correction now has brought sellers into the market. What I find very interesting here is that even though this in theory, it should be a weaker short and inflation story, what we see is that the market just prices in all inflation a bit cheaper because the market is so scared to sell front end inflation. It is something that the market did several times and it becomes a bit of an anecdote, a bit of a you know, joke. And there is the jocularity with regards to that. Uh, what have you done? Have you sold inflation? And it, it keeps going, going, going. So we see that there is, despite that correction, that there is a lot of fear in the market. And we think that this is actually justified. So this is why, in our view, from a directional point of view, probably investors um, should be fairly neutral, simply because that volatility may persist. Uh, or if they want to have any inflation views, they should try and hedge with commodities, with um, oil and natural gas. And what is this, I guess, volatility in the inflation market uh, and people's sort of changing expectations around future inflation? What has that meant for um, rate hike pricing in the UK? I think it's, we need to put things into context and, um, we, we've had over the last two weeks, one year inflation expectations pricing higher by around 50 basis points. Um, and there's been a repricing higher in, 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 in terms of hikes. Now this is smaller, this is lower than uh, what you would expect in a normal environment because a significant part of that is energy inflation. But there is indeed um, a lot of traction um, with regards to paid positions. So there is significant appetite from investors to go with a theme, you know, to sell fixed income, to pay the front of the curve. But what I find very interesting is that more and more discussions come up with regards to a potential policy mistake, which to me, this is, this is very significant, i.e. the market thinks that, yes, there may be hikes coming up, but this is not with a strong economy. This is just because these, the inflation risks need to be controlled which probably will have to be negative for other asset classes. I mean, we see equities, for example, being particularly weak. So um, long story short, yes, there has been some paying at the front of the curve, um, but we also think that, you know, um, it is different and it will be a very different hiking environment than say, um, if we had a conventional, a strong uh, hiking cycle as uh, it would have been uh, during other circumstances. Makes sense. Thanks, Theo. So sort of sticking with the inflation discussion, but moving over to the euro area then, Giles, um, I want to ask you something that's kind of increasingly coming up um, in our conversations, certainly around the office, but with clients as well. And I know um, both you and Jan are going to groan when I use the word. But what, what, how do you feel about speculation? You know, is, is that where we're headed now or um, is that not your base case at all? Well, it's not our base case by 
a long way, to be honest with you. Growth is pretty strong. Our forecasts are for much higher growth than we've seen in in recent years because there's still a significant gap uh, to to fill between where we are in terms of total activity and uh, where we were before the pandemic. And you know, so I think that the the idea that we are headed uh, for a recession or anything like that is is, is obviously a fairly uh, fairly sort of distant tail case. No, I think most people accept that. And what we're really talking about is the risk of slower uh, recovery growth, um, but with more inflation in the mix. And so I suppose you know we have to think a little bit about what that means um, for for the curve and sort of, you know, what what it means for central banks and what it means cross asset because obviously that then feeds back into into rates markets and so yeah we've had a lot of questions around that subject and to be honest with you it seems to me like there's quite a lot of confusion as well well hopefully we can dispel a little bit of that through von Sticking with inflation then, because this week you've been doing um, a survey to our um, kind of corporate clients and asking them about their sort of expectations around um, uh, well, f- the future path of inflation, I suppose, and, and what impact that's going to have on their um, uh, corporate decision making. Um, I was wondering if you could just share some of the interesting takeaways from that survey with us. Yeah, by all means. Uh, Actually, before I do that, I'm just going to go back on uh, this question of the confusion and so on that that I was just alluding to, because now I I think it is important just to say that essentially, I mean, you you already heard from Theo that uh, there's this question of, you know, is there going to be a, is there going to be a policy mistake of some kind? And to be honest with you, that can cut both ways. I mean, a policy mistake could be the kind that allows inflation to let rip, and it could be the kind that actually just pushes us as a result of this higher inflation and all these constraints on the supply side into into a much slower growth, um, possibly even recession. And then that it turns out to be what kills inflation, and we just get shoved back into a into a low inflation kind of trap. And so, when people are th- thinking about what this means for for rates, I mean, obviously at the moment, inflation break evens are, are are roaring, to be honest with you. And so, you know, that's one market which has made its view pretty clear. And in fact, this morning, now I'm very pleased to see it's come back now a little bit. But you know, we actually reached 1.85 on the five-year five-year inflation swap, which is a long-term target that. I had. Um, you know, we didn't take that off. Honey. You know, my bias is to see that going higher. But for me, the only way to trade this is a curve steepener, particularly in Europe. And I mean, I am, I'm actually surprised that there's this level of con- confusion. I mean, I completely understand that markets leap ahead to the ultimate conclusion where the you know, where, where the path the path ahead is an obvious one. But at the moment, you know, I I don't think that you know, most people would reasonably conclude that we're headed towards um, uh, a, a stagnation, a significant stagnation, recessionary type um, environment. I think that it's much more likely that what happens is that we end up with less QE and central banks just you know, playing it a little bit defensive on on rates, and so that's going to allow. Um, you know, both the flows and the expectations to kind of steepen up the curve. So that's that for me is absolutely you know, 
clear conclusion. Okay, um, on your other question, the survey. So this this is actually, this was mostly of UK clients. And I, th I think you know, it, it was interesting because it was um, aimed at mostly sort of small and mid cap um, corporates um, from our, you know, the, the, the client base from our, our wider bank. And now we're going to discuss again um, in a in a written note with with more detailed conclusion. So if anyone wants to get into that, look for that, or you know they can always reach out to us if they have a relationship. But the the conclusion was very clear that firms think that this period of higher inflation and cost pressures is. I, I, no, in the main is going to continue until well into next year, towards the end of next year, or you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, I'd say about a third of um, respondents are saying that it's going to continue into 2023. So it's going to be quite prolonged. And they seem to be quite positive um, at least about their pricing power to deal with that overall. So you now this idea that you know, at least UK PLC doesn't have any pricing power. Is um, no, doesn't seem to be borne out at least by uh, by this survey. And you know, I would say that that's also reflected in you know, business surveys of, uh, I guess, you know, manufacturing in, in the US and a lot of anecdotal stuff um, out of um, out of the euro area as well. So, if you're thinking about know what the, the the likelihood of a you know, perpetuation of this through expectations and price setting well i think this is um, you know, something that you should be taking seriously all right thank you charles moving away from inflation slightly then jan and over to the us where um the key um i guess focus this week is is going to be payrolls on Friday. Um, now I will repeat what Theo was saying is that we are recording this on Wednesday, but probably not likely to come out until Friday. So <laughs> most listeners may have the luxury of knowing what that payrolls number is. Um, unfortunately, Jan doesn't. <laughs> um, so without getting into too much detail, I suppose on, on what our forecast is for, for this inflation uh, for this payrolls number, sorry. I guess the, the most important question here is really what number will we be looking for to change the course for the Fed's take parole? Is that really not, um, is it going to have to be extremely weak for them to really be thrown off their current taper timeline? I think, I think that's right. Looking into our crystal ball, I guess, and on Wednesday, we have slightly below market consensus, somewhere around 400,000 jobs. And we were thinking that even with that, that will be well above the Fed's comfort limit of let's go ahead and just for reference, the consensus at the time of recording was about 500,000 jobs. So and we're still about 100,000 below below where the market sees it. And we think that is a, you know, a decently above the threshold that uh, Chairman Powell and the committee would be comfortable to go ahead with tapering. There's a couple of caveats. And now I actually have the privilege of seeing the ADP numbers, which came pretty strong. And they, they're not always you know, perfectly correlated with the non-farm, but we did, get a, we did get a good print just before the recording. Uh, there's of course going to be a couple of other, a couple of other little, I don't want to say kind of like scapegoats, but you know reasons why the Fed could even look past the uh, below our forecast the jobs number. First, we had Hurricane Ida. National readings have been a little bit muted, but but you could still see that spilling over a little bit into the uh, into the September jobs number. The other thing is the August numbers technically not technically usually have the tendency to be revised higher. So if we see that the really weak print going up by, say, 50, 100,000 jobs, then 
in reality, this month's forecast didn't even have to be 400,000. It could have been just, you know, all else equal 300,000 makes the same change. So while we're still below what the pre-COVID level, pre-COVID employment levels are, I think, I think unless it's a really, really disastrous print, uh, the Fed will be fine to, uh, fine to go ahead in, in November. I don't have a specific number to give, keep in mind. It's going to be very subjective and I suppose how the market reacts to it, but it has to be, I think, very, very weak to, to stop them. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. So away from monetary policy, then last week we spoke a lot um, about the fiscal side and, and what's going on in politics. And well, there's loads going on. <laughs> so perhaps you can just give us an update on on um, the, the kind of latest happenings over the past week, because there, there was a lot to talk about last week. Yeah, and I promise I'll keep it much shorter this time. <laughs> but <laughs> so this week, the main uh, the main development was the White House sort of intervention into the into the, the negotiations. So we heard from President Biden, who sort of came in and said, went to the progressive side of the Democrats, saying this three and a half trillion package is not going to work out; it has to be smaller. On the other hand, he, the suggestion was something about one point nine, two point two trillion. On the other hand, the, the centrist Democrats, I'm talking like uh, Senator Manchin and Cinema, they, they're kind of looking more like a one and a half trillion figure. But uh, earlier this week, after President Biden's remarks, uh, Senator Manchin came in and said, you know, 1.9, 2.2 is actually something I'd consider. So it sounds like they're reaching a middle ground for this uh, for this uh, Democrat-only reconciliation bill, which would have the, the social packages. It obviously will have to be uh, trimmed a decent amount because of the because of the you know, reduction in size, but it's kind of in, in, in line with our base case of two trillion of, of new spending with some one and a half offsets. So it looks like that's happening. Although the biggest gridlock now is the is the whole debt ceiling debacle, which we're still in the middle of. Uh, today is Wednesday, so they will have another vote in uh, in Senate, but that probably will be uh, blocked again. It won't happen. So we, we're just not seeing a way that the debt ceiling issue gets resolved in a, in a partisan way, but rather it will eventually have to go through the reconciliation process, which is a little bit slower and kind of more tedious and more complex. And it, it's only from, has to come from the Democrat side, so Democrat side, but to me, it just feels like this is gonna get dragged out till the, like the very last moment. With that 2 trillion package then, is that's our base case. Is that close to what you would say market consensus is for that number? And if it, does turn out at, you know, say two trillion, how does that impact or not impact our supply outlook into the rest of the year and, and beyond? Right, I think it's in, in line with market consensus, more or less, and of course that two trillion has a lot of it in, in tax increases and other sorts of offsets. But the thing is, and uh, it's important to keep in mind that treasury is really, really overfunded right now with the current pace of issuance. and. Even with tapering, assuming it starts in November, we, we think we'll see the we'll see a reduction in coupon insurance from November onward, announced to November refunding. So now they're about one trillion, almost one trillion a year overfunded if they continue with this pace in, in coupon insurance, which is it has to be trimmed. Of course, this, these packages say the partisan and the bipartisan, if they have about one trillion of new spending uh, combined, and that's spread almost over a decade. That really doesn't move the needle that much compared to what the Treasury is issuing right now. So I don't think it really makes a, a makes a big difference in the trajectory in the near term, especially. I think what what eventually would end up happening is that Treasury has to just cut slightly less. But at this stage, they're like I said, they're well overfunded.
Okay, great. Thank you, Jan. Well, I think that's probably all we have time for today. So thank you everyone for joining me. And just a reminder that um, we now have our very own Bondcast channel. So if you do want to keep getting the latest episodes of Bondcast straight to your ears, head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen uh, and search for Bondcast, the Rates Podcast and hit subscribe. Thank you. Speak next week.